When I was a freshman in college is when I made a commitment to Christ. And I remember that was in April. <clears throat> and so then my sophomore year, the, after the fall of my sophomore year, I remember going home and singing Christmas carols and being blown away by these songs that I had sung for 18 years up to that point. Or maybe I wasn't singing when I was a little guy, but I mean... 10, 12 years, I had known these songs and they were familiar. And after I had made a commitment to Christ, those songs ripped off the page and became alive to me. It was amazing. It was like, these aren't just empty words. These are, this is amazing. The the theology of Christmas carols alone is incredible. And I encourage you to, as you sing them, just try to, I know it's easy when melodies are familiar just to forget the words, but man, These are powerful, powerful words. In fact, uh, this Christmas, we're going to take a four-week period, all of December, and we're going to take a little break from our Church on Fire series in Acts. And what we're going to do is we're just going to spend some time enjoying one Christmas carol and the implications that come from it. And it is the Christmas carol, Joy to the World. I want to read it to you so you hear it without without the words. It says, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. People don't write like that anymore. (laughs) Employing songs. Isn't that a cool phrase? Think about that, you know, employing, like picking a paycheck. It's cool. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Isaac Watts wrote that. He was a uh, 17th century English Puritan. I'm going to tell you much more about him in the weeks to follow and what his motivation was and what he was going through as he wrote this hymn. He was a prolific writer. He wrote 600 hymns. Only at which, of which I know three. <laughs> But uh, I'm sure the other 597 are cool. But uh, <laughs> I, I only know three. He came in a, in a period of time where singing songs was not allowed. And he broke that mold. He was, it was radical to, to do some of the hymns. Now we think of hymns as, as maybe stodgy or whatever. And actually, uh, there's a renewal now about hymns. And we try to sing more and more here. But... Uh, At that time, they were radical. I mean, they were like, you know, 25 years ago playing drums in church, how radical that would have been. That's what a hymn would have been like when he wrote these things. So he was, you know, a long-haired hippie freak for his day. He would have been a nut. And he was basing his hymns on personal experiences and and scripture. And he based Joy to the World on Psalm 98. He picked uh, four verses from Psalm 98 Verse 4, which says, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. 
Verse 6 says, With trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Verses 8 and 9 say, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the wor world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. This week, I want to just spend some time on that first verse. The first verse that says, Joy to the world. Go to that one, Maddie. I think we got one more. Yeah. The Lord has come. I want to start with that phrase. Joy to the Lord. Uh, joy to the world. The Lord is come. And I think because we're 2,000 years removed from this, we, we don't get the specialness of it. We lose the specialness of Christmas because it's just a mundane thing. Now, everybody in this room, even the, the little ones, knows that Christmas is not necessarily about receiving presents, although I remember as a little kid thinking that song, A Little Town of Bethlehem, where it says, the hopes and fears of all the years that I get a Johnny Quest space outfit guy. Uh, that's what I used to think that meant, but that doesn't mean that, kids. Hopes and fears of all the years does not mean you get exactly what you want. Everybody here knows it's remembering the birth of Christ. No doubt about that. But have you ever stopped to think about, is there anyone else's birth in the world that a good portion of, not the entire world, but a good portion of the, the world shuts down. All the financial markets, I mean, everything just kind of shuts down for a day to celebrate their, their birth. Now, in order to feel how, how impressive that is, how awesome of a thing it is that we celebrate Christ in that way, I want you to just imagine something for a second. I want you to imagine that your name is Caleb which for about three of you in the room is not difficult. But just for, just for sake, your name is Caleb. And you're, you're a 32-year-old man. You have a wonderful wife. You have three lovely children. And you work with a guy named Joe. He's a carpenter. He's part of your union. Joe's a good guy on the line. You live in Nazareth. And the date is 5 B.C. You've known for a long time that something very important is going to be happening because you've been counting the years backwards for centuries. <laughs> I just love that joke. I tell it every Christmas and you still laugh. That's the funny thing. Uh, <clears throat> But most importantly to you, most importantly to you is, is the thing that you hold most dear. You love your family, you, you, you love your wife, you love your job, you work with a good group of people, but most importantly to you is your heritage. You are a Jew. You love that. And since you're a Jew, you know the Bible, and it was only the Old Testament at that time, you know it very, very well. You've memorized portions of it by the time you were 12 years old. You know the highlights of the Jewish nation. You've heard them from your mother and your father and your grandfather and your grandmother over and over and over again. You know of the whole account. You know of creation, of how God out of nothing spoke. And all of a sudden, there was something. You know about Adam's longing for a soulmate. And God created Eve to meet that need. You knew about Genesis chapter 3 where sin entered the world and everything changed from that point on. Everything was never to be the same. Sin tainted everyone. 
you know about um, the promise that was given. The first promise ever. Right during when God was cursing the land, he also gave this promise in Genesis 3.15. He says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel as God is cursing the, the serpent. Excuse me. You think about this a lot. What did God mean by that? How, how is the devil going to be crushed? And it's a major mystery to you as you're living in 5 B.C. Of course, you, you're a faithful Jew. You know of Abraham. He's your, that you call him the father Abraham. How God promised to make him the father of a great nation. Abraham only had one son through that promise, Isaac. But Isaac had two sons. But only one was part of the promise, Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And the descendants of those sons were the 12 tribes of Israel. You knew that the Jewish people were very good at being faithful to at least one commandment, and that was be fruitful and multiply. And they multiplied like crazy all over the place. In fact, they multiplied so much that the nation that they were in got very afraid of them and enslaved them. And Pharaoh made them slaves in a land. And all of a sudden, the nation was now enslaved to another nation. And was God going to do anything? 400 years pass. 400 years. But God does do something. Brings along Charlton Heston and Moses. The deliverer brought people out of slavery and brought them to their own land, Canaan. Unfortunately, uh, the history of the nation of Israel would also include a good remembrance that Israel never met a rule of God they didn't love to break and break it heartily. They couldn't make it straight shot to the promised land. They had to go 40 years in the desert because they wouldn't trust God that he would deliver them and bring them into the land. They also, shortly after that, they became a nation in Canaan and other places and, and, and judges arose. And if you read the book of Judges like you would if you were a, a person in, in 5 BC, you'd see that the nation was slipping, 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 slipping constantly into more and more and more disobedience. Even the great King David was not able to completely control his passions. He gave in and in a one night stand with a woman, got her pregnant and had, his, had her wife, or excuse me, her husband killed. And our own, one of the guys we, we love more than other, anyone else in the Bible, David is an adulterer and a murderer. And you can see this History, and as you're reading through and as you're thinking through the history of Israel, you think, well, it's got to get better, and it doesn't. It gets worse. The nations decide to not follow God anymore, and there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is Judah. There's a split, and it's a dark day when the split happens, but cheer up, things continue to get worse. Because of increased disobedience and rebellion against God, both nations fall to outside sources. First, the northern kingdom Israel in 722 B.C. and then the southern kingdom Judah in 586 B.C. And it gets even worse. Once you stop reading the scriptures, you see that Alexander the Great comes in and he takes over the land. And then comes... Um, Pompeii, and he comes over for the Roman Empire, comes in. So now it's been 750 years, and your nation has not yet been a nation. 
How is God ever going to make this right again? You ask yourself. How is that going to be? Will he ever intervene on our behalf and give us a sense of being a people again? Or will we just be common or even at the worst enslaved again to the Romans? What's going to happen? And then you remember three promises from the prophets. The prophets. There's three promises. First promise is from Jeremiah 31. And it says that there's a day coming that it's coming. God promises. Jeremiah 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, where I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. There's a new day coming. Secondly, there's a person coming. And Isaiah, the, book, the prophet Isaiah writes, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we would, should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought him peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And you're sitting there in 5 BC saying, when is that coming? I can't wait. And the last promise is God's going to do a work not only in how there's a new covenant coming and there's a new person coming who's going to wipe away my sin, but there's going to be a new way of relating to him. I'm going to relate to him from my heart now as opposed to just trying to do things. In Ezekiel, another prophet, he writes, For I will take, this is God speaking, he says, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. And be careful to keep my, lo to keep my laws. And you're waiting 750 years. That's a long time. I was just quiet for about 15 seconds. You all got nervous. <laughs> 750 years and nothing. That's what Christmas is all about. If you don't get a chance to rethink what happened in the context of what everybody was waiting for, you lose the incredible awesomeness and, and the, the, the mystery of Christmas. That it was breaking this silence radically. I mean, if you, if you read Luke, it says, like Aline read, it says, these angels just shout. Can you imagine? It's just, it's just thousands upon thousands of angels saying, glory to God in the highest. 
I'm here. 750 years are done. Now, we live on this other side of it. We live on this side of Christmas. They lived, you know, before you lived, uh, when I was using it as an analogy, at 5 BC. We live over here now. It's so easy to lose that preciousness of what Christmas is because we know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Recently, I was thinking about King David. You know, King David, uh, and I was thinking, one of King, I, I believe one of King David's things that he struggled with was, how in the world does, when I slaughter a bull, how in the world does that take away my sin? That makes no sense to me. How does that work? And he, I, I can just see King David wrestling with that. You can see in some of his psalms saying, why, why do you, what's this, what's this about? How does a bull take away my sin? And you and I, live on the other side of not only Christmas but of Easter and understand that Christ died for our sins being fully man and fully God the infinite one could pay an infinite crime which you and I have committed. We get it. And I can see David King David would be yelling at me saying wait a minute now you live over there you get this stuff. I, ne I never had a chance to understand that. You get it and you're complaining about a broken water pump on your truck? We lose perspective. When, when King David was said, oh man, I don't even know what a water pump is, but I'm sure it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> so you enter the next 20 days of preparation for Christmas. That's what you have. I don't want to freak you out. You only got 20 shopping days left. I want to encourage you to let your heart be filled with the same anticipation that the Israelites felt for 725 years. The Messiah is coming. This is not a little event. It's one of the two most important events in all of history. The incarnation, Christ coming is in, in the manger, and the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, Easter. Those are the two most important times in all of history. This Christmas, ask God to make your heart anxious like it was for them. But prophets only dreamed about seeing you and I have an opportunity to see his history backwards. However, in spite of all the predictions that were read about Christ's coming, some missed it completely. Some scorned the very one they were waiting to come. Jesus didn't fit their political agenda or their social calling or their, re their religious agenda. <clears throat> they missed the author of life. Look at the, look at the second and third line of the, of the um, joy to the world. It says, joy to the world, the Lord has come, which is a statement. And then it's a command or a wishing that something would happen. It says, let, let earth receive her king, which is a... Interesting phrase, isn't it? Let earth receive her king. The king comes and yet he asks to be received. He is the king, but he asks to be received. And then this phrase right here, let every heart prepare him room. I want to ask you as I close this morning, is there room in your heart for Jesus? In the book of John, chapter 1, it says, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. 
Isn't that nuts? He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Knock, knock at the door. You look through the peephole. Nope. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of husband's decision, human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. You open the peephole, you say, Jesus is here. Open the door, come on in. Don't miss Jesus this season. In all the busyness, I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey this morning. Some of you are at a questioning phase and, and Christmas is a great time to ask those kind of questions. Some of you are right on the border saying, should I follow Christ or not? What a better time in the world to start enjoying the Christmas carols with a new perspective to say, Jesus, today I want to open that door. Today I want to open that door. I want to let you in. I don't want to keep looking through investigating you. I'm done with that now. I want to open the door. I want to let you in. And some of us have let him in, but in the busyness of Christmas, and I know this is our case too, with all the running around and presents to buy and parties to go for, it, it, it could just as well be New Year's. I've got a radical news statement here for you. Shouldn't even make the paper. Christmas is not New Year's. All New Year's mean is you have to go down to Hallmark and get a new calendar. Christmas means 750 years of silence was ended radically. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that you would shock us this Christmas. You just once again bring us to the manger in a way that, that, that surprises us. And it's hard for some of us. We've grown up with the stories. We've been followers of you perhaps for a long time. I pray for this Christmas, 2004, that you would surprise us. That you would let us smell once again the hay You'd once again have us in awe with a picture in our mind's eye of thousands upon thousands of angels singing glory to God in the highest. I pray that this Christmas would be a year that we would open the door wide and let you in. For some of us, we've closed that door a bit, either by neglect or by just uh, uh, on purpose, just saying, Jesus, I can't handle too much of you. Would this Christmas be the Christmas when we, this whole season, when we just say, Jesus, I want all of you. It's all I want for Christmas is Jesus. Jesus, would you come in? Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Pray this in Christ's name.